I'm just a hunk, a hunk of burning love. That's to remind you of where we left off last week. My son learned to play guitar by playing along uh, as I sang that song over him. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. Uh, he didn't make the song by playing guitar. It was more like the song made him as he played along on his guitar. Scripture says that God is love and God is a consuming fire. He's not part love and part consuming fire. He's all love and all fire. Love is fire and God is one. Last week in Revelation 15, we saw that to enter God's rest and to be one as God is one, we must be baptized in the sea of glass and fire. Paul writes that we are baptized into one body. The judgment of God burns away what separates us, and it is what unites us. We talked about baptism and we talked about communion. You know, a body is a communion of life. Over and over again, Scripture teaches that the life is in the blood. The willingness to bleed life is love. And sometimes it burns. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray that you would cause us to preach to preach your word, and Lord God, your word cuts. It cuts into that which would divide us one from another. It cuts away our flesh. And Lord God, we pray that you would baptize us in your spirit, and that Lord God, we would commune with you. Uh, the life is in the blood, and Lord God, in each of our bodies, that oxygen in that blood. The life is spirit. It's metabolized even as fire. It's why we live. And so, Lord God, cause us to preach. Cause us to love as you love. Cause us to be the body that you have created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is love and he commands us to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. The second commandment is even the way to do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is whoever happens to be next to you. So do it, okay? Turn to your neighbor. Go ahead and do it. I'm the pastor. I'm the boss. Turn to your neighbor and say, okay, if you, you, you guys, you're going to do it Scott and Scott. Look, you're both named Scott. You're right there. Okay, turn to each other. Turn to each other and say, say this. I love you. Okay, go ahead, go ahead and say it. Some of you are laughing. I mean, what, what's wrong? Did you, not, did you not feel it? Did you not feel the, the burning passion, the, the, burning, the burning love? <laughs> not so much, right? So maybe we need, maybe we need a, a song. Coleman learned to play guitar to a song. Maybe, maybe you need to say, I love you to the rhythm of a song that constantly envelops you and surrounds you, and the good news is, <laughs> I got the song! So, turn to your neighbor, turn to your neighbor, okay, like before, look at, look at him in the eye, and Mark, go ahead and play the song, all right? And what I want you to do, as the song plays, I want you to say the words of the song to your neighbor, okay? Say these words to your, look at them, do it! Look at them and, Say it with the song, okay? Come on. We'll always love you. Okay, go for it. Look at each other. Ah, ah, ah. You're not doing it, Todd. Always love you. Now do you feel it? Yeah, not so much, not so much. It seems that we need something, something more. So I preach the word, God is love and his commandment is love. We get together every week and we sing worship songs about love, but we need something more. What is the 
something more. Maybe we need threats. You know, motivators. Threats of, of punishment if we don't comply and promises of reward if we, if we do comply. I mean, that's common sense, right? Is the gospel common sense? Or is common sense more like a river of lies in which we live? Common sense is to motivate with, with threats, but how do you motivate someone to love when love is to be the motivation for everything, everything? Do you motivate love with not love? Do you preach the word saying, God is love and will always love you, but if you don't love him, he won't love you. Do you command love God or else he, he, he won't love but will burn you with fire? And yet love is fire. Do you say to the children at play in the garden, you better take knowledge of the good so you can make yourself good for if you don't make yourself good, you'll be bad and the Father will endlessly torment you with wrath. Last week, we saw how that lie turns the children of God into beasts who bite and devour one another, who take life and excrete death. Turns the children of God into beasts and great little harlots who try to earn the Father's love and so crucify love in the sanctuary of their own soul. The lie turns all of us into beasts and harlots that pretend to love but secretly hate love. The word for that in Greek is hypocritos. So we get our English word hypocrite and it basically just means actor. Self-centered actors acting as if they love, teaching other self-centered to act, act as if, if they love when, when they really don't love. And you know what we call that? Religion. Ironically, it was the, or maybe not so ironically, it was the religious leaders of Israel that became the most beastly and whorish and so crucified goodness and life himself on a tree in a garden. Well, you see, we pastors, we feel this pressure to make you all in the image of God. And when it seems like maybe that's not happening so much, what do we do? Well, it's common sense that would tell us that we need to use some, some threats. And so we read scripture with common sense looking for threats. And I tell you, a pretty good place, it seems, to find them are the, is, the, is the revelation. In the late 19th, early 20th century, some religious leaders read the Revelation and for the first time came up with this previously unheard of before concept called the pre-tribulation rapture. It's what the left behind books are all, all about. It's the idea that the Revelation is a timeline and if you're smart enough to figure it out, you'll heed the, the warnings, the threats and say the sinner's prayer so that you can be raptured out of this world and leave uh, the rest of humanity behind to suffer tribulation. If anyone ever tells you to read the Bible with common sense, this is what I want you to say in your heart. Get behind me, Satan. It was common sense that crucified Christ. It was not common sense that chose to be crucified. That was the logic of God, the logos of God to be the one that's left behind. The first chooses to be last of all and servant of all, said King Jesus, <laughs> the first and, and last. The gospel is not common sense. It's the word of God who is love. Well, see, most people in our society, they see Revelation 16 as the penultimate threat. You better love like God loves or God will pour out his bowls of wrath on you. And they see Revelation 20 as the ultimate threat. You better love like God loves or he'll endlessly torment you in the lake of fire. Most people see the Revelation as a threat, but, but it's, a, it's a really weird kind of threat. In the last chapter, we'll read this, this verse, this commandment from Jesus. He says, let the evildoer still do evil. 
and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I mean, you never see that engraved on a plaque down at Mardell's bookstore, right? Or on a plaque behind the officer's, uh, the, the pastor's chair, and the, uh, let the evil, st- well, that's not a threat. And we'll soon see that the ultimate threat upon a soul that doesn't love is not that he can never love, but that he'll be thrown into a lake of burning love until he does love. And we've already seen that the liquid in the bowls of wrath must be, well, it must be the blood of the lamb, and and that's only the beginning of the not-so-common sense. So let's try to read it not with common sense, but instead read it with the mind of Christ, who is the logos, or logic, of the creator, the logic of love. Revelation 15, verse 5, After this I looked, And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, plagues, literally wounds or stripes. The Hebrew word translated plague means the same thing. It's a wound or stripe. So the ten plagues on Egypt were wounds inflicted by God upon, upon Egypt. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven wounds clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. The seven angels are dressed like Jesus and may very well be the seven spirits of Jesus centered into all the earth and in specific to the seven churches. And one of the four living creatures, remember that surrounded the throne, uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath, the thumos, the passion of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues wounds of the seven angels were finished Taleo ended perfected it is accomplished then I heard a loud voice from the temple now same word as sanctuary telling the seven angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the thumas of God see if that's a threat it's a really weird threat For not only is the substance in the bowls of wrath the mercy of God, which is the blood of the lamb, but the wounds on earth come from the wounds in the sanctuary in heaven. As we saw last time, even in the stone temple on earth, that inner sanctuary was was like a piece of eternity in time. The wounds come from the sanctuary which is the seventh day and the end of the ages, when and where everything is good and it is finished, teleo. Jesus claimed that the sanctuary was his body, and we will read that he is the first and last, beginning and end, the telos, the, the end. So, so do you get this incredible picture that John is trying to describe wounds in the eternal sanctuary that is the body of Christ appear to create the temporal wounds on the body that is you. Eternity is responsible for time. Time is not the creator of eternity. Common sense would tell us that we're responsible for Christ's wounds, but this vision seems to reveal that Christ's wounds are responsible for us. Common sense would tell us that the crucifixion of Christ is the result of our choices, but the vision would seem to reveal that our choices are somehow the result of the crucifixion, both good and bad. Our bad choices cause his wounds in time, but his wounds are eternal and somehow cause our wounds in time. So so don't misunderstand. Jesus was crucified for your sin. He was crucified for our sin and because of our sin, but you and I sinned so that we might see the crucifixion of Jesus. So what the Bible tells us, Romans 11, God consigned all to disobedience. It's your disobedience that crucified Christ. God consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. 
that he might bleed mercy on all. Throughout all of space and time. And so who bled first? He bled 2,000 years before you were born and even had a chance to disobey. According to John, the lamb was crucified from the foundation of the world. You were predestined, according to Paul, you were predestined to live to the praise of his glory, and his glory is mercy, which pours out of his wounds. Chapter 4, John was like outcarnated, remember that? Outcarnated into the eternal throne room. Then and there he saw every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising the lamb standing on the throne with wounds. As if he had just been slain. Hebrews even says that. He's newly slain. See, it's not like his wounds are dependent on us, but we are dependent on his wounds. It's not like God is saying, get your act together or I'll afflict you with wounds. Which, by the way, is how you make actors. Hippocrates, hypocrites, trying to get their act together. But it's not love or I'll afflict you with wounds, but I will afflict you with wounds that you might love in my image as I love. It's not like the seven wounds are a threat. It's more like the seven wounds are the revelation of glory and how God makes us in his own image. And remember, his perfect image is Jesus. He is the beginning and end, Revelation 15, 1. We read it. With these seven wounds, the wrath of God is finished. Teleo, perfected. It's as if the wrath of God in time perfectly reveals his wounds in eternity, even as his wounds in eternity explain every wound in time. Do you remember what Jesus showed his disciples on Easter evening when he rose from the dead in his perfected and glorified body and like walked through the wall? His wounds. I mean, he wasn't, I, I, I don't think he was crying in pain. It's not like they, it doesn't seem like they still hurt, but they were wounds. They were holes in his hands and his feet and his side. I had a friend who was brutally abused as a little girl. She told me one day, Jesus used to appear to my, in, my, in my room and he would let me put my fingers in the holes. I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? She said, you know, the wounds. He would have me put my fingers in the wounds. I have another friend who was horribly abused as a young woman. And she was just terribly ashamed of her scars. One night as we prayed, Jesus appeared to her and he showed her his scars. And lo and behold, all of her scars were on his body. So who was wounded first? My friend in 1965? Or Jesus from the foundation of the world. And are his wounds shameful? Are her wounds shameful? Or glorious? In my deepest wound I see your glory and it dazzles me, wrote Augustine of Hippo. <laughs> Recently I've been, I've been praying with another friend who was abused and in, he, in whom the evil one would manifest during prayer. Jesus revealed that we could crucify Satan in the body of my friend by placing communion wine on her hands and her feet as he manifested in her body. Once we were all crucified together. I don't have time now for all the story, and I know that it's weird, but I can tell you this, that when it was all over and Satan was gone, my friend kept looking at her hands and at my hands in which she saw Jesus' hands, for they all had the same wound, as if one nail was driven through all three, or two nails through all six. And now she, me, and Jesus were all joined at the wound. Once my wife had a vision of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit facing each other, all holding hands, forming a triangle. She said, Peter, I looked closely and I saw that the hands were joined with a nail driven through each pair of hands. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were joined at the wound. 
Some of the deepest wounds I've ever felt came the night I was tried and defrocked by my fellow pastors on the floor of the presbytery. That's the church of my denomination. I didn't know where all the wounds came from. Some came as a result of my choosing the good. The fact that I wouldn't deny that Jesus died for all. Some came as a result of my choosing the bad. As I told you a couple weeks ago, I chose to go into the ministry out of a desire for vengeance. That's bad. When they read the verdict guilty, my friend Andrew, who was sitting right next to me, just grabbed my head and he thrust it against his chest and he just held me tight. And we were joined at the wound. It's always reminded me of how God arranged all things such that John would bury his head in the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. Now they were joined at the wound. When I pray in the mornings, I usually picture myself with my head on the chest of Jesus and him holding it tightly to himself. And we're joined at the wound. Me, Andrew, and Jesus. In a counseling session years ago with David Hinson, you remember, who was part of our church, he, he asked me to picture Jesus walking up to me as I stood naked on this particular beach. And as Jesus walked up to me, I saw his wounds. <laughs> and then he like started pointing at me and I looked down and I saw that we had the same wounds. We were joined at the wound, and so my wounds were not a curse, but the ultimate blessing. Where would I be without my wounds? I mean, seriously, what would I be without my wounds? I think I would be nothing but a self-centered, self-absorbed, lonely actor. I would be nothing but a beast, consuming life, and excreting death. I'd be nothing but a tired old harlot continuing to desperately try to purchase love and not having a clue as to what love really is. Well, the seven angels pour the seven wounds out upon the earth. Some say that the events that we'll read have, uh, or they say that they, they will happen in the future, and, and I'm sure they will. Others say that the Things we'll read hap will happen or did happen in the past, and, I, and I'm sure they did. For instance, we'll read about these 100-pound hailstones that uh, fall from the sky. Uh, Josephus uh, in the, hunt, uh, wrote the history of the Jews, and he wrote it almost 2,000 years ago, and he describes how the Romans launched these 200-pound rocks painted white from catapults that fell on the city in 70 AD. It, it happened. The plagues in Revelation 16 remind us of the plagues upon Egypt becomes in, in some amazing way, they are. They also remind us of the seven trumpets and the seven seals, for in some amazing way, they are. Uh, they should remind you of your wounds, for I think they are. They are the wounds on the body of Christ manifesting on all flesh in all space and time with his stripes wounds, we are healed. For he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Revelation 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the thumas of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We've seen that our ego is shaped in the image of the beast when we believe the lie. So to worship the image is to worship yourself, which is to be marked by the beast and all who dwell on the surface of the earth. Remember we read that two chapters ago. Well, they seem to get marked by the beast, even if a part of them can dwell in heaven. And we talked about that last time. You have a beastly old man that is the result of believing a lie and so manufacturing uh, that beast with your deeds. It's the man of dust. And you have a new man that is a gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, for his name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. You have a man of flesh and you have a man of spirit. 
Sores are wounds in your body of flesh. And we all have them. Human flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God, wrote Paul. That's what circumcision is all about in the Old Testament. And that's what baptism is all about in the New Testament. Verse five, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living soul, psyche, died that was in the sea. That was, however, is supplied by the translator. So the Greek reads like this, every living psyche died in the sea. Jesus said, you must lose your psyche to find it. You don't need to fear dying in the sea if you've already been baptized in the sea of glass and fire. That's what we studied in the last chapter. In circumcision, flesh is cut away for the sake of intimate communion producing life. Likewise, in baptism, you remember that your sins have been washed away. Your old self is crucified. Your psyche has been destroyed, all for the sake of intimate communion with God and your neighbor. What is it that keeps you from loving God and loving your neighbor? I think it's your beastly and whorish ego. Sorry. (laughs) It's the illusion of your own sovereignty. You are baptized into one body, and that's the body of Christ. Remember, life is communion within one body. Death is separation from that body. Salvation is the death of death, the death of that ego that traps you in fig leaf shame and a a body of death. Life is a communion of love in which every member chooses to bleed for the other. We said that each of those blue dots was like a human psyche, a soul. In this world, bleeding is painful. For one member is not connected to another member. It's sacrificial love. But in a body where all parts are connected and so bleed one into the other, bleeding is no longer painful. It's an ecstatic communion of love called life. The wound in each and every member is connected to the wound in the next member, and through the wounds flows the river of life. The life is in the blood. Verse four, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, right are you, O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, these decisions, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar, this is a talking altar, I heard the talker, the altar saying, yes, Lord, Lord God, the Almighty, true and right, true and just are your judgments. You've given them blood to drink. (laughs) Why do you come to worship each week? week? (laughs) Because God has given you blood to drink. It's what you deserve. Not because you've earned it. Because he earned it. God earned it. God repays our evil with good. We took his life and discovered that he has always given his life from the very foundation of the world. It's his judgment. And anytime you choose to love, which is choosing to bleed for your neighbor, it's because the judgment of God has taken his place on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul. Verse eight, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, these wounds. They did not repent, change their mind, and give give him glory. I guess they were keeping the glory for themselves. They didn't give him glory. Jesus, you remember, Jesus appeared how at the beginning of the revelation? As the sun, his face shone like the sun. And Jesus is what, according to John? The light of 
of the world. Listen to this. This is the judgment, writes John. The light has come into the world and people, not some people, just people. People love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Then John writes this. Everyone who does foul things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But everyone doing truth comes to the light so it may clearly be seen that his deeds have been done by God. That's John 3.18, right after John 3.16. How come you never hear people quote that? Maybe because it means everything good in you is the work of God in you. And you see, that leaves no room for my ego <laughs> and only space for worship. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, torment, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They did not repent. They did not change their mind, for they perceived the light as a threat, and so ran into the darkness, crying out, hide me from the wrath of the Lamb, just as they did in chapter 6 at the opening of the sixth seal. You, you remember that. They perceived the judgment as a threat. And maybe it is a threat. It's a threat to the darkness. It's a threat to our sinful flesh. It's a threat to the illusion in which we have all trapped ourselves. It's a threat uh, to the prison in which each of us hides. It's a threat to hell because the judgment of God is life. Jesus says that, 1250, John 1250. I know the Father's commandment is eternal life. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Israel always lived in fear of the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole, the whole world. Well, that would be more than just the kings from the east. That'd be also like the kings from the west and the south and the, and, and the north. And if we take it literally, not only the kings from 70 A.D. or 2057 A.D., it would be the kings of the earth from all space and time. And if you worship yourself, well, then you are like your own, your own king. And you know there can only be one king. And so, of course, you would hate the king of kings. Verse 14, the demonic spirits go abroad over the surface of the earth to assemble the kings for battle on the great day, the day, the great day of God the Almighty. When, when's that? The great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to take a shower in your swimsuit. It's not talking about physical nakedness, but, but psychic nakedness and the righteousness that we've been preaching about all along. Blessed are those, listen to the revelation, blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that they may have the right to the tree of life. See, Jesus is the eschatos Adam, that's what scripture calls him, who covers us, his bride, with his own righteousness, which is himself. He completes us. When Eve and that first Adam sinned, they immediately covered the place where they were to come together in a covenant of life. They covered the wound left from the surgery performed by God from before the fall to teach them of his love after the fall. They covered the wound, but not with each other. They covered it with fig leaf bikinis of their own ridiculous construction. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, says Christ. He's coming like a thief, but he's not a thief. He's your husband. Are you worried about his coming? Gosh, if you are, you must not trust your husband very much. 
Behold, I'm coming like a thief at an hour you do not expect. You know, if the Left Behind series was right, and the Revelation were like this map, these folks would know exactly when he's coming. <laughs> Seven years after millions and millions of people like just vanished into thin air. That would clue you off, right? So when and where is Armageddon, you ask? Okay, it talked about Armageddon. When and where is that? When and where is the day of the Lord? Well, in Hebrew, Armageddon literally means mountains of uh, Megiddo, something like that, mountains of Megiddo. And I've been to Megiddo. There aren't any mountains, just like little hills and a plain. So some think it means mountain of assembly or mountain of the crowd due to the way that Hebrew words can be transliterated into the Greek. But listen to Zechariah 12. This chapter 12 through 14 is the most amazing prophecy, and I hope you have time to read it later. You do have time, so just read it later, but we don't have time now. But listen to this much. On that day, says God through Zechariah, I will make Jerusalem like a cup of staggering to all people. That's like a cup of wrath. I will pour out on Jerusalem pleas for mercy when they look on him whom they have pierced. John tells us that Zechariah is talking about Jesus. On that day, continues God through Zechariah, on that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning on the plains of Megiddo. On that day a fountain will be opened to cleanse from sin. It goes on to describe an earthquake and this eternal day that invades like all of our days and God's name will be one and, and God will be king of all. Did you get the picture? The day of the Lord is the day that all the children of Adam, thinking that they were the kings of the earth, uh, the day that they took the eschatos Adam and nailed him to a tree in a garden just outside the city of Jerusalem. And the day of the Lord is the moment in which you see and believe the judgment of God, the word of God, Jesus. The name means God is salvation. And this is how he conquers. This is how he conquers the beasts, the harlots, the nations, and the kings. They look on him whom they have pierced as he cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And into your hands I commit my spirit. And as the sky grows black and the lightning flashes and the ground begins to shake, they realize this was the Son of God. God breaks our stone hearts with a revelation of his relentless love. It pours from his wounds as he hangs on the tree. It's the river of life. Verse 16, and they assembled, the kings of the earth, they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple. Now where's the temple? <laughs> What's the temple? A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. Where does John picture Christ as being enthroned? Remember, he sees a slaughtered lamb standing on a throne. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! It's finished! It's accomplished! Verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away. Remember where John was? He's on an island all alone. No more islands. Every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. That means the whole land is a plain, as Zechariah prophesied. Every valley is a exalted, every mountain and hill laid low. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. Verse 21, and great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the wound of the hail, because the wound was so severe. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment on the great harlot, and we will see, as we read the rest of the revelation, the beast and the harlot are destroyed and the flesh of all men is cut off. It's, it's circumcised. It's cut off and destroyed by the king of kings. And the voice from the throne says, Look, I make all things new. Still takes some time, but humanity repents. 
Even the kings of the earth, Revelation 21, 24, the kings of the earth bring their glory into the city that is the sanctuary, that is the body of our living Lord. We repent when we finally come to know the contents of those bowls and the meaning of our wounds. It's the blood of the Lamb that we have relentlessly slaughtered. It's that blood that's in every bowl. It's the blood of the Lamb that flows from his wounds and reveals the meaning of all our wounds. We enter God's rest, according to Hebrews, through the torn curtain in the sanctuary. We enter God's rest and become who we are through the wounds in the body of our Lord. God is relentless, furious, unending, and absolute love. Dang. So how do we learn to love? Well, you see, you can't just read a book describing love and then just go decide to love. God is love. And you can't just sing a song on Sunday morning and be made in his image. Not just like that. As I said at the start, we're missing something. And so what are we missing? Wounds. Wounds violate our illusion of sovereignty and cause us to bleed. They crack our earthen vessel. They eat away at our flesh. They violate our sense of control. What is that? That's our ego. The wounds from the throne are poured over the days of our lives. We don't come to love simply by reading a book or singing a song, but maybe we do learn to love by going on a journey on which we're wounded, like we talked about last week. Like this, maybe we go on a camping trip with Dad, and on the journey we're, we're wounded. Now, God doesn't will evil. Did you hear me? God doesn't will evil, but he wills for us to encounter evil and be wounded by evil and, and even do some wounding. How else could he get himself crucified, right? God is sovereign over all. Well, perhaps every wound is a bowl of wrath. The wrath burns away the illusion of our own control, which turns us into what? Beasts, harlots, and self-absorbed hypocrites, actors who cannot love or, or be loved because they don't know what it is. And maybe every wound is also a trumpet that's sounding. And remember, the trumpets proclaim what? Atonement, which means what? Remember, at one God is breaking down the walls that divide and behind which each one of us hides. And maybe every wound is also a seal being opened, a seal that reveals what? We talked about the mystery of God. That we are one body, Christ in us and us in Christ. Each member giving life and receiving life, a river of life that flows from the throne is mercy, mercy for all, and returns us praise to our Lord, the head of the body, Jesus the Christ, upon the throne. You know, a body is joined at the wounds. If it was ever broken, it is rejoined at the wounds. So anyway, what are we missing? Well, perhaps our wounds. Actually, we, we already have them. You already have them. So I'm not saying you have to go out and get them or give them to you. You already got them. But what's the problem? We cover them. We usually cover them. We cover them with egos, defense mechanisms, and ridiculous fig leaf bikinis. But you see, it's your wounds that teach you about Christ's wounds. Especially on the day that you realize they all belong to him. And it's your surrendered wounds that invite others to love. Listen closely. Never manipulate with wounds. That's not love. That's harlotry. Don't attempt to manipulate love with wounds, but expose your wounds to love. And where will you find him? Well, love is in the temple sitting next to you, your neighbor. You don't need a professional counselor like Francis or a professional pastor like me. There's nothing special about my friend Andrew. Except that he's a container for God. And he's willing to bleed. And let me see. Your neighbor 
is a uniquely shaped, and Andrew is uniquely shaped, your neighbor is a uniquely shaped container of the life of God, and so are you. But not only a container, a conduit, or a vessel, a vessel of mercy, if you're willing to bleed. Perhaps the best gift that you can give your church, your life group, or your Christian friends is your wounds. And you know, your deepest wounds are your sins. They cause wounds, and they are wounds in your own will that needs to be healed with God's will, and God's will is grace. So what am I saying? I'm saying confess your sins, one to another, and then bleed grace. You know, that's the thing that heals, not, not you, but the life of Jesus. Bleed grace. And when you are wounded by the neighbor you love, well, that's when the magic really begins to happen. Every sin is an invitation from God to bleed fire upon the one that wounded you. That's the weapon that slays the dragon, turns beasts into men, harlots into brides. That's forgiveness. That's the will of God in you. The will of God. You see, I think it's already in you. If you haven't come to understand it yet, maybe it's still behind a curtain in the deepest part of your sanctuary, but I believe it's in you. What's the problem? Your ego won't let it out. But when your ego has been sufficiently wounded, you will begin to see mercy and you'll begin to love mercy, and you'll begin to bleed mercy. And when you have come to bleed nothing but mercy, you will have been perfected in the image of God. So I hope that you all have a group of Christian friends, a group of people with just like at least a mustard seed of faith, with which you can share your wounds and bleed life, one into the other. We can help you form one if you don't have one. There's nothing magic about this. We call them life groups because we just want a name for it. Life groups. And what should they look like? Well, several years ago, I saw a movie about a group of privileged, self-centered, beastly, and whorish Hollywood actors who were just miserable inside, even though they constantly partied on the outside. While they were partying, well, the end of the world, like, like it happened. After a little while, they learned that if you loved people, it, it wasn't too late. You could still get raptured, but they couldn't just act like they loved. They, they had to really, really love, and, they, and they, uh, they didn't know how. They said the words, they sang the songs, but they needed something more. Ironically, most religious end times movies don't seem to have a clue as to what the revelation is all about. It's the revelation of Jesus. I definitely wouldn't recommend this movie for families. Do you hear me? <laughs> but I think that in the end, they got it right. The bulls of wrath are not a threat as to what might happen if you don't love. The bulls of wrath are the wounds that liberate us from ourselves and free us to love like Jesus. Listen to me, man. I, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm, I put myself up. I, I'm, I'm self-righteous. I no. think I'm better than you. No. I was resistant to change. No. I should have grown with you. I, I should have. I should have changed with you. We should have changed together. I, I, I didn't like what I became, so I hated what you became. It's fine, man. It's fine. I love you, Seth. I, I love, love you, man. Let's die together, man. Let's die together. You do, you do, okay? Yeah.
We're both gonna die if I don't let go. I'm not gonna hold you back anymore. So on the night that the Protoss, the King of Kings, was betrayed by all of us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. This is the torn curtain in the sanctuary. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. This is the river of life. And then he said, drink of it, all of you. That movie was titled, This is the End. This really is the end and the beginning. So close your eyes. We you just close your eyes? This is hard to talk about because when you're wounded, all you can think about is the pain of your wound. You see, you live in space and time, and you don't yet entirely trust the logos, the plot, to your story. But as I was, as I was preaching, undoubtedly you thought of one or two wounds. Would you give them to Jesus? You don't have to understand them. You don't have to understand whether it's your choice or someone else's choice. It's who you, you don't have to. Just think of your wound. And now say in your heart, after me, say these words. Lord Jesus, I give you my wounds. So now let me ask you a question. Whose wounds are they? Well, they're his. And here's a shock. They've always been his. And so now I want you to pray a prayer that I think the Apostle Paul prayed. And believe me, he had a lot of wounds. Say, thank you, Lord, for letting me share in the fellowship of your sufferings, your temporal sufferings. And now say, thank you, Lord, for letting me share in the fellowship that is your life, your eternal life.
You see, your wounds are not a curse. Or maybe I should say they're not only a curse. They've been absolutely filled, baptized, and consumed with blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Dark cup is wine, light cup is juice. To whom has your truth been revealed? What good is your beauty concealed? We will look to you. We will look to you. Like a root coming out of dry ground, there's no majesty here to be found. We will look to you. on your wounded side we can feel it all creation brought to life with your hand show the glory with your feet tell the story let us come just as we are beautiful scars sorrows of grief and disgrace you're the one from whom all hide their face but we will look to you we will look to you you're the brilliance that's lost on our eyes once rejected by all and despised we will look to you on your wounded side we can feel it all creation brought to life with your hand show the glory with your feet tell the story let us come just as we We can feel it All creation brought to life With your hand show the glory With your feet tell the story Let us come just as we are Beautiful scars Tell the story Let us come just as we are Beautiful scars Let us come just as we are Beautiful scars And so we talked about wounds and if you're like me, you feel your wounds and you look down and you think, oh my God, my whole left side is bloody and wounded. And then I look at maybe my brother Andrew and I go, God, he doesn't have a wound on his left side. 
Maybe you love him more than me. Maybe, you, maybe I did something wrong and he did something right. I mean, I can, I, can, I can look and my wounds can intimidate me when I compare them to another. But I think God says, no, Andrew has different wounds, Peter. Look closely. He has wounds. Everybody in this room has wounds. Uh, don't let those wounds intimidate you. Think about this thought. Maybe they're all body parts. I mean, if they're all body parts, then their wounds are kind of interesting, you know? Because how could this thing possibly come together? Andrew's been in my small group. We've had a small group, and Alan Parsons and some others here for 25 years, and we get together during the week, and we just sit down and have coffee or, or whatever, and I can't fix his wounds, and he can't fix my wounds. We've discovered that. If we try to sew the body together, we end up with Frankenstein's monster. But when we get together, maybe God can fix the wounds. And so if he took all of us and all of our wounds and started joining us together um, in one body, well, what would we be? We'd be glorious, the body of Christ. And all of our wounds would be the ultimate blessing. Well, that's just not might be. <laughs> that is. So in Jesus' name, may you believe the gospel and share your wounds.